15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley. I think I've forgotten to tell you that for the last 100 episodes, but that's who I am. And joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. <laughs> How are you doing, Andrew? You see, you've, you've got to keep telling people what your name is because otherwise they get it wrong. <laughs> I, I do it on the radio just about every segment because it's the only way I can remember my name at this uh, this yeah. particular stage in my life. But uh, I haven't been told to shut up because we know who you are, although when I worked for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, that actually did happen. <laughs> I got an email one day saying, Andrew, can you stop telling us who you are? We know. <laughs> so I did stop for a couple of days yeah. and then I forgot who I was and thought I'd better get back to it. Yeah, that's but, right. Uh, it, it, you kind of develop, when you're on, in radio, you kind of develop um, little crutches, little habits. Yeah. And that's probably one of mine. I just sort of default to my name as a, as a way of sort of changing subjects. Uh, others have different um, ways of doing things. I, I work with a fellow at the moment who's been in radio even longer than I have which makes it a very long time. And he has um, a, 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 a crutch that he uses when he wants to finish off explaining something. He always ends the sentence with, and all that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realise how much he said it until somebody pointed it out one day, and now that's all I hear. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it's like saying to someone, next time you listen to the radio, listen for the breaths between sentences. Oh. And then that's all they can hear. <laughs> it's it's yeah it's, people don't notice it until you ex say something and then they just can't unnotice it anyway fred that's beside the point uh let us talk about what's happening on today's program and uh, there's been this amazing image released of jupiter it's an infrared image and it's uh it is spectacular not only that it was uh, a photograph uh, by a, um, a friend of yours a former colleague and it is a composite photo it's not a point and shoot oh there's a good photo type of thing this this actually took a bit of work and it's uh, been going on for about a year we're also going to talk about catching interstellar asteroids like the space doogie oh i got to say it again yay uh yeah the space doogie um a year or two back sort of skirted past Earth and the sun and we, we found out after the fact that it wasn't actually from our solar system or even our galaxy as it turns out, I think, or was from another star system within our galaxy. I can't remember, but Fred will correct me. Um, but now they're talking about uh, a, a very uh, clever way of um, capturing these things. I don't know if they've been catching them and bringing them back to Earth or just, you know, finding them. Uh, and we've got a, a couple of intriguing questions to tackle this week. One is uh, related to asteroids uh, and a new theory on the Tunguska episode, which saw uh, vast areas of Siberia obliterated by an, uh, what was thought to be an asteroid impact. But uh, now there's a new theory thinking that it was a, an asteroid that grazed our atmosphere. So someone's sort of uh, come up with a question about, well, how close is too close? Well, obviously, if that's what happened at Tunguska, that was too close. And uh, we have um, Paddy from Sydney, who's a roof tiler, who wants to know if he can go to Mars and you know, put tiles on the roofs of dwellings on Mars to protect astronauts. It's actually an interesting question to ask. So we'll uh, we'll tackle all, all of that today. We're sort of coming out of left field in uh, many respects. 
As always. Uh, Fred, let's talk about this uh, fabulous photo- uh, photograph of, uh, of Jupiter. It's, uh, I'm looking at it right now. It is amazing. It's stunning, isn't it? And um, what's really spectacular about this picture is that it was taken from a ground-based telescope. In fact, the Gemini North Telescope, which is in on the uh, on Mauna Kea, the mountain in the Big Island of Hawaii. Um, you mentioned a friend of mine uh, a minute ago. He didn't take this image, but he pioneered the technique that has been used ah. to take it. He's now, I think, okay. he's now retired. Actually, uh, his name's Craig Mackay, and he's um, he's uh, was for many years a, a senior astronomer at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. Uh, so he, many years ago, uh, addressed the problem of how we eliminate the distorting effects of the Earth's atmosphere. This is, you know, with a big ground-based telescope, the, the limit as to how much detail you can see in an image is, all, is always the atmosphere. It's the turbulence in the Earth's atmosphere. And that's why big telescopes are built on high mountaintops, because they are better. They've got less to deal with. That less to deal with, and the turbulence is usually lower, especially if they're near the western seaboard of a continent. It's a, it's a complex set of geographical circumstances that lead to this, you know, stability of the atmosphere, which is what it's kind of the holy grail of, of visible light or optical astronomy. Um, so Craig's uh, idea was... Well, let me just say that there are, there are the, the sort of standard way of dealing with this is something called adaptive optics, where you essentially you look at the light that's coming down to your telescope through the atmosphere, and you sense the distortion in it from the from the atmosphere by looking at the way a particular star uh, changes. It, it's it's actually the, technically it's the wavefront that's changing, but you can think of it as the twinkling of a star and you can sort of measure that you can sense that and then a little bit like you do with noise cancelling headphones you essentially invert that uh, that signal of the turbulence and basically subtract it from what you're getting and it cancels out the turbulence that's the theory it's a lot more complicated than that but that is expensive uh, the technology has taken 20 years to get to the kind of state it is now which is actually really pretty good and it's one reason why we're now thinking about building ELTs, extremely large telescopes, on the ground, because they will use this adaptive op- optics technology. But Craig Mackay, uh, it's probably 20, 30 years ago now, figured that um, if you've got bright enough objects, uh, you can do something a little bit different. Uh, his speciality was what we call CCD imaging. That's the the uh, solid state images that are now in all your phones and cameras and things like that. Um, that uh, is uh, allows you to, if you've got a bright object, to take many many images repeatedly of the same thing, uh, and that. It effectively gives you a movie, but what the movie is doing is recording, as well as the object you're looking at, it's recording the turbulence in the atmosphere. And there will be moments when that turbulence uh, settles down and you've suddenly got maybe a tenth of a second or a thousandth of a second of perfect stability. And so what the lucky imaging technique does is it, you, you, you gather thousands of images and then you go through them 
uh, and just pick out the ones where the atmosphere was perfectly stable. And then you add those together and you get something like what we're seeing with this image of Jupiter, something that's got the most incredible detail in it. Now, there is a lot more to it than that, as there always is. Uh, that should be my crutch, shouldn't it? Oh, there's more to it than that. Um, but uh, the... the uh, the technology is not just, you know, it's not just somebody looking through it by eye. This, there are very sophisticated algorithms that let you select the best images and add them in a particular way. And in fact, with this image of Jupiter, they had to, the algorithms had to be clever enough to allow for the rotation of Jupiter. Jupiter rotates on its axis once in about, is it, it's 10 hours, I think, roughly. Uh, and uh, that means that, you know, the, the features that you're seeing are changing position on the disk of Jupiter. So it's got to take care of all that. So that's how this fabulously detailed image was made. In fact, in southern in Jupiter's southern hemisphere, the detail that you're seeing is is almost comparable with what we're seeing from the Juno spacecraft, which is in orbit around Jupiter, right next door to it. Wow, that that's a that's a big call. Yeah. Well look at it. Just look at the image. You've probably got I, it in front of you. It, I have right now, yeah. Um, see those eddies and whirls, the storms? Yes, it's not. It's not um uh, it's certainly not the same as Juno, but it's it's revealing things that we didn't see before in ground-based images. Uh the other thing we should say about this image, Andrew, and I think you've mentioned already that it was taken in the infrared region of the spectrum, the redder than red part of the spectrum, uh, where we're yeah. essentially sensing heat. Uh, so the reason why the image looks really peculiar when you compare it with a visible light picture of Jupiter. In visible light, the cloud belts of Jupiter are bright and they're the, the features that you see most obviously. But in infrared, the cloud belts are actually dark because they're silhouetted against the heat that's coming out from the planet's interior. So what you're seeing in the in the bright regions of this image, uh, and, it, and it is easy to find. I'm sure your your our listeners will go and find it very easily. Uh, but what well, you they, see, they'll they'll see it when they uh, download the podcast download because the podcast. I'm going to make it our feature image yeah, for this week's episode. That's the thing. Yeah, good. Okay, so we mm. can talk about it uh, with uh, with impunity. We don't have to worry that people are going to say, "Well, will we find this image?" Uh, yes. So, yeah, it's it's the cloud belts are dark. Uh, and in between them are bright regions. So you're looking down to the layers of Jupiter's atmosphere that are warmer than the cloud belts. And that's um, why we see this effect of the cloud belts being silhouetted against this this, this uh, heat radiation that's coming from, from Jupiter itself. A marvellous image, really, and very, very spectacular. And I hope, mm. um, I hope Craig's looking at it and thinking, yeah, I started all that a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's nice to sort of uh, be a pioneer, I guess. Um, he was, yeah. And, uh, that's what that's what Captain Cook told you when you um, when you came to Australia, isn't it, Fred? Something like that, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With an infrared image, I'm just interested in now, and it's a silly question, but what colour is the red spot in an infrared image? Uh, it's... Um, that's a really good question, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure whether the, the red spot might be in this image, actually, uh, but silhouetted. I'm suspecting it's black. It's colder. Yes, that's right. Uh, the red spot does, we know from Juno that the, the sort of circulation, it's a big cyclone, and that extends a long way down into, uh, into Jupiter's atmosphere. So you might expect that you're seeing a bit of a hole into the lower layers of Jupiter's atmosphere that might make the red spot bright. Uh, but, uh, of course, the red spot, 
necessarily be on the side of Jupiter that's facing us in this image. But yeah, you've got me there. I shall try and find out. That's a really good question. Mm. No, well, I didn't think it was. But anyway, thank you. I'll take that. Um, <laughs> there's another um, thing that we might just mention, and that's that the infrared radiation um, that is detected from objects in space is not just one colour. It has a spectrum uh, like visible light does. So you can see, you know, these um, sort of barcode features in the infrared spectrum, not as many as you see in visible light. Uh, but you can also divide the infrared spectrum into colour bands, um, which we do, and we call them JH and K, at least in the near infrared, which is a bit odd because they're not in alphabetical order. Uh, the J uh, is not it's just wavelengths a bit short a bit longer than red light uh, and k is much longer and k is where the heat really the k wave band is where the heat really starts showing through so i suspect this hmm. image is either in the k wave band or in you know in um, uh, perhaps a, a composite of some of those wave bands so now that we've uh, sort of perfected this technology and we're able to uh, gather images of you know our near neighbors like this is this going to mean that it's probably going to be easier and somewhat cheaper than sending uh, probes to other worlds or are we still going to have to do that for practical purposes yeah the, the, there's no question but that you learn more about these distant objects by having something right next door to it you can do so much more um this is it, images like this are um they're valuable because they actually back up uh, what the spacecraft are telling us. So, you know, you, the, you can bet there'll be scientists comparing this image uh, with the images that were taken by Juno at the same time, showing the the clouds in the in the same, you know, the same uh, instant of time. Uh, so all, all of this comes together to increase our knowledge. There'll be researchers who are getting the most amazing information out of this. Uh, but you also need the spacecraft. Um, there's no question of that. Mm. And I, I suppose that also backs up the um, the basis of, of uh, scientific discovery. Uh, you need more than one confirmation. Yes, that's to right. To determine something, don't yeah. you? Yeah, uh, that's mm. right. That's the element that you know the, the the central element of science is that you need to be able to do repeated experiments. You need to get information from different sources. There you go. All right. Take a long, hard look at that uh, beautiful image of Jupiter, uh, which is um, on our uh, website and probably on whatever image you're looking at via whatever platform you download our podcast from, which is um, sort of available everywhere these days. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space nuts. Now, Fred, before we get on to our next topic, uh, I'm very excited to be able to tell people that uh, want to ask us questions that they can do so. Now, up until now, we've been getting questions through Facebook posts, uh, through email, through the website contact uh, interface, but now you can record them. If you would like to record using your own voice or someone who sounds similar to you, uh, a question for us, you can go to our website and there is a start recording button. All you have to do is have a microphone available uh, through your laptop. I guess it'll work through your smart device, um, whatever. Uh, and once you're um, geared up, just press start recording and away you go. You can ask us your question. Uh, you know, we'd like to keep questions down to 10, 15 minutes max. 
Um, but uh, or ten or fifteen seconds even. Uh, but even um, if you uh, have something you want to say or something you want to ask Fred about, um, use you can use the recorder. Now it's available through the bytes.com space nuts website. So that's b i t e s z dot com slash space nuts, bytes dot com slash space nuts, and you can record a question. And uh, if we deem it worthy, Fred, we will uh, we will use. Uh, the audience audio rather than me reading out questions from um, from people third party. So it'll be a nice uh, new um, toy for us to play with, a new innovation, and it'll you know give people uh, an opportunity to hear from other Space Nuts listeners in their own voices, which I think is uh, is a fabulous thing. And um, we'll be able to answer the questions that way. I mean, we'll still take them the traditional way in in writing. Uh, or via email or whatever, but uh, if you'd like to record a question, that is available right now on the bytes.com slash space nuts page. Uh, now, Fred, um, looking forward to that, by the way, uh, let's uh, move on to our next topic, which is that of um, uh, catching uh, interstellar asteroids such as the Space Doogie or Oumuamua, as it is officially known. Uh, when they say catch... Are they talking about finding or actually capturing? Neither. <laughs> right. Okay. I knew I'd get that right. Yeah. So they'll be found by <clears throat> um, by telescopes on Earth. And, in fact, the one that will probably do the biggest job in discovering interstellar asteroids, these are asteroids that come from another solar system, uh, that will probably be the Vera C. Rubin Telescope, formerly known as the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which will be online in Chile in a couple of years, I think. Uh, that telescope is going to survey the whole sky, or the whole southern sky, I think about once a week. Uh, and so it will be second to none at finding asteroids, not only near-Earth objects that might one day collide with the Earth, but also things that come from other solar systems. So the finding will be done in, in a sort of routine way. Um, the problem that has been, uh, you know, recognised with the two interstellar visitors that we've had. And one, as you rightly said, was uh, the interstellar asteroid Oumuamua, uh, which I always think of as more like a French breadstick than what you always think of, but that's just the way these things go. Um, it's a, a long and thin, that's the bottom line. Uh, and the other one yeah. is uh, Comet Borisov, which uh, is actually uh, has now passed through the solar system but was very exciting at the beginning of the year. The problem with these objects is that they, first of all, they're incredibly interesting because they're free samples of the you know, the constructional debris of other solar systems, which is a very exciting uh, thing to find. Uh, but the problem is that they are typically whizzing through the solar system at speeds that make them very difficult to catch. Uh, so the idea of grabbing one of these and bringing it back is not one that's on the horizon at the moment. But what we would like to be able to do is to take a better look at them uh, either by a flyby of one of these objects with a spacecraft or, better still, a rendezvous where you put uh, a spacecraft in, into orbit around one of these objects. Uh, the mm. problem, though, is actually setting the scene in order to be able to do that. And, you know, we, we felt very impotent 
particularly with Oumuamua, I think Elon Musk tried to drag together enough rocket-powered oomph to send something chasing after it, but it <clears throat> it really wasn't going to happen. This thing was herring off at 23 kilometres per second or something. It, just it was long gone by the time gone. we found out about it, wasn't it? Well, it was. yes, it was past its, solar, uh, its closest point, that's right. So, you know, that was very much a... Uh, a rearguard action, trying to trying to figure out how to send something to chase after it. So uh, yes. a suggestion has been made that we should be better prepared, and it's been made with sufficient uh, uh, quality and cogency that the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program, the NIAC program, has actually funded research into how we might deal with this problem. And the suggestion is to build and put into orbit around the sun um, something, and I love this name, something's, something called statites or statites, and it's short for static satellites, <laughs> okay? Ah. <clears throat> and they're satellites of the sun not, um, not, not in orbit around the Earth. So what you do is you build these things, you equip them with light sails, which we've talked about before as well, uh, and what yep. the light sail, and then you send them out to various strategic points in a ring around the sun. Effectively, um, I don't know how many you would have. Uh, you know that would depend on the funding and things of that sort. Uh, but you, the light sails actually act as stabilizing devices, so they 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 basically allow them to hover in the same spot uh, 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 in the you know above the solar system if I can put it that way um, they would probably also have the capability to detect smaller objects whizzing past so that they, they, they might you know if you're in the outer solar system uh, you might see something that has not yet been picked up by the large synoptic telescope or the Vera C. Rubin telescope, uh, so that there is a detection capability. So <clears throat> I'm sorry I made that error <laughs> when we spoke, when, when, when we described this a minute ago. So yes, finding them is part of the, part of the deal. Um, although uh, I think we'll still find that most of them are found from Earth-based telescopes. Anyway, that's, that's the first part of it. So you've got these things in a ring. But then what you do is you have each one of them has its own little fleet of, of CubeSats. Uh, and so if something passes reasonably close by, you can essentially launch off a CubeSat to chase after it and either, oh. either do a flyby or do a rendezvous, going to orbit around the uh, the object. Uh, it's a really neat idea. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, a very, very clever, um, uh, uh, you know, suggestion. It's led by somebody called uh, Richard Linares. I think his name might be. He's in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics at the MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So fantastic stuff. Um, and what a great suggestion. Uh, it, I don't think it's anywhere near being on our immediate horizon because this is only a like a feasibility study. But, yeah, maybe in a few years uh, we might find that we've got this ring of uh, what somebody has described as solar sailing sentries. Uh, love the alliteration there. Uh, oh, yeah, that's clever. Yeah, good stuff. It's a, it's a very clever idea. Uh, it's probably not a simple task to execute, but if they're um, smaller objects and uh, easy to manufacture, uh, that makes them easier to launch and deploy, et yeah, cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 
uh, and and really uh, an opportunity to to learn a hell of a lot about what's happening beyond our solar system. That's, which, um, yeah. let's face it, is is one of the great mysteries, isn't it? We can see out there, but being able to actually observe something that's come from out there that's in our vicinity would be um, would be wonderful. Exactly, and just imagine what you know if you think back to when Oumuamua flew through the inner solar system, which I think was the end of 2017, if I remember rightly. It's quite a while ago. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think uh, so. But imagine if we'd had something like one of these that was sort of ready for it um, and um, could launch a CubeSat to chase after it. Uh, and or or even intercept it, you know, as it as it leaves the solar system, it's it doesn't really matter where you intercept it, as long as you get close to it and get close enough to to, to give us some images, uh, rather than our imaginations, which is what runs riot in the case of Oumuamua. Um, yeah, fabulous stuff. Mm. Indeed, and um, it, probably no truth to the story I heard that uh, Mua, the uh, affectionately known as the Space Doogie by <laughs> all the world's leading experts, is the reason why there's a toilet paper shortage on Earth. Oh, that at could the be present it. time. Yeah, yeah, that'd be it. Yeah, nothing to do with coronavirus. But, um, yes, right. just this big thing. Indeed, past. You, don't, you don't need to go into detail, Andrew. We get the answer. Don't I? Oh, I was going to. I was going to elaborate. <laughs> yeah, I thought you might. <laughs> don't, don't, don't need to do that. Good. Okay. No, well, that saves a bit of explanation, doesn't it? <sighs> I think we need you're to listening to this. <laughs> we should go on. the conversation to an end with the classic and that sort of thing. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, and speaking of which, I mean, we're talking about people's catchphrases um, or, or um, crutch phrases earlier on. Yours, Fred, I know, is, and the reason this is in the news at the moment, oh, that's yours. <laughs> All right. I, I'd like a dollar for every time I've heard you say that. Yeah, it does come out a lot. I, I, I kind of like to explain why we're talking about things. <laughs> yes. Does it? Perhaps it does. Well, quite often, quite often what we talk about requires a backstory so we can talk about what's exactly. developed today. So that's um, that's how it goes. So I'm looking yes. forward to being able to say, and the reason why that isn't in the news at the moment is... <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to saying that when it comes to COVID-19. Yes. The reason why that isn't in the news yeah. is because we defeated it. Mm. Yeah, it'll be a long way off, though. Uh, you're listening to the Space Nuts podcast, episode 202, with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. 
uh, I think you'll agree, and governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, Fred, uh, I, I always like to shout out to our patrons through patreon.com slash space nuts, the people who are putting their money where our mouths are, which we really appreciate. And because of that, we've been able to invest in some new toys, such as the uh, voice recorder on our website, so people can basically ask the questions uh, of us verbally without having to write emails and messages. Uh, but we have a new opportunity for people, again, driven by the audience. And this is, uh, I suppose, similar to Patreon. Uh, it's just a, a different platform called Supercast. Now, a lot of people prefer to use Supercast or have a, a preference for Supercast. So uh, we've um, set up an account on uh, Supercast. Uh, spacenuts.supercast.tech is the website. Spacenuts.supercast.tech. You'll probably find a link to it on our webpage, but uh, there you can become a premium uh, member of the Space Nuts podcast, and it's $5 a month. There's a 30-day free trial, which you can cancel any time, and uh, you get access to our back catalogue with new episodes added weekly, um, exclusive bonus uh, material, 100% commercial free. Uh, So that's what we offer you as a Supercast member, so you might want to check it out spacenuts.supercast.tech. Now let's uh, get into some questions, Fred. We've got a couple of interesting ones, uh, as always. And our first question comes from Camelo, uh, who is in Los Angeles. Now, uh, Camelo um, introduced himself by explaining that he is a social worker in LA and he's looking after the homeless on the streets. And uh, you have a pretty busy time of it at the moment, trying to help them uh, not only to survive day by day, but avoid uh, COVID-19. So um, our hat's off to you, Camilla. You're doing amazing work and thanks for getting in touch. And we wish you well with uh, everything you're dealing with at the moment. Um, people like you make the world go around. I work for the Salvation Army, so I, I do understand where you're coming from, uh, dealing with uh, the welfare needs of people who are just so down on their luck. Uh, and Freddie's got a, a, a sort of a two-part question, and this this relates to what we were talking about uh, in terms of asteroids. Uh, so uh, this question was inspired by an article that uh, he read in the Siberian Times. Now, uh, the Siberian Times uh, has um, come up with a new theory about how the uh, Tunguska 
event originated. Um, basically, that, that thing that happened over 100 years ago that flattened massive areas of Siberia uh, with um, that, that the shockwave of a, an asteroid impact. Now, according to the Siberian Times, another theory is that the asteroid didn't actually hit the Earth it skimmed the Earth and went back out the other side of the atmosphere. So um, uh, Camello's asking, how close might an asteroid skim by Earth without uh, without crashing into it and or being pulled into the Earth's gravitational field? And how large is the size of the one that would skim Earth versus those that often uh, pummel our planet on a daily uh, basis? Are these things the only deciding factors or might we also um, include a factor where is uh, where it flies by and what that particular part of the Earth's magnetic field looks like. I'm not sure if I'm right, but I do know that it varies from place to place, does it not? Uh, sorry for my long-winded questions and many thanks for your combined podcast, even though these uh, odd times for us biological creatures on Earth. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's an interesting question about um, asteroids. I suppose the bottom line is how close is too close and can they do the damage that we're talking about in regard to Tunguska without actually hitting us? Uh, yeah, that, that's right. I actually saw that article as well. And uh, I think it is a really interesting suggestion. So um, the idea and what what prompts this suggestion that maybe it was something that basically grazed the earth, it skimmed through the atmosphere, uh, detonated probably, uh, but then the bulk of it carried on uh, on its journey through space. Um, one of the reasons why people like that idea is that it's very hard to find any evidence of debris uh, as a result of the Tunguska event. There's there's no single crater. People have looked at the the whole landscape around there. It's, it's full of lakes, and uh, there is a suggestion of a, a lump of something at the bottom of one of the lakes, but nothing that would you know, account for the the uh, 80 million trees that were essentially flattened by by that explosion, which, if I remember rightly, was in 1908, as I think you mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, so the, if you postulate uh, a grazing impact, then you, you at least, you know, if you can make the physics work, and apparently they do, you can neatly answer why there's no you know there's there's no meteorite there's no a- asteroidal debris <clears throat> that has been found in the district um so just going to Carmelo's questions um the, the the answer to both of them and you might not be surprised to hear me say this is it depends <laughs> uh, yeah. how how close might an asteroid skim by the earth without crashing into it and or be, being pulled into the Earth's gravitational field. So what it depends on is the speed of approach. Uh, and uh, the, you know, if you've got something that's going relative to the Earth, let me do a quick calculation here, less than about 11 kilometres per second, then it will probably hit the Earth because that's the Earth's escape velocity and it works backwards mm. as well as forwards. <clears throat> but most of these things are travelling much faster than that um, because the Earth's orbital velocity is 30 kilometres per second around the sun uh, and, uh, you know, asteroids 
uh, uh, in orbits that that give them a whole range of velocities as well. So you might get things up to perhaps 70 kilometres per second on the high end, and you can get things that are low speed because you, you've got the asteroid and the Earth going in the same direction. So it all depends. If you have something going at a really high speed, uh, then it will, and it would skim through the atmosphere, then it will be slowed down by the atmosphere, but not really significantly. And that might be the phenomenon that we've seen with this object. Uh, so um, you you get a, a you know a, a, an interaction with the atmosphere that is probably explosive and um, very likely to, to cause debris on the ground. Uh, but the, the the height that this would happen, I'm guessing that you're talking about um, heights as near as thirty kilometers or something like that to the surface. Uh, that wow. that would if something was going fast enough it would not be appreciably slowed down by the atmosphere, even at that sort of depth. But it would cause, uh, if it was a big object in particular, it would cause um, quite a dramatic detonation of the outer layers at least. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, the, thing about, the thing about asteroid impacts is a miss is as good as a mile. Uh, and, yes, a, a miss of, uh, of 500 kilometres is much better because it doesn't interact with the atmosphere to speak of at all. Um, but if you've got something that penetrates deep into the atmosphere, and I'm saying, you know, maybe uh, 30 to 50 kilometres, I think 50 kilometres is the assumed height of the explosion at Tunguska, uh, th then it, it, if it's going fast enough, it will keep on going. Um, yeah. And once again, how how big is the size? Well, it, it really is dependent on speed. What the size determines is how much of it comes out the other side, <clears throat> the other side of the atmosphere. If it's big enough, uh, then there'll be still something left to, to fly on back in its orbit. Uh, if it's uh, smaller than, and I would guess you're talking about 50 metres or something of that size, uh, then you might get a complete detonation and, and, and will produce some debris on the ground, which is exactly what happened uh, um, with the, the Chelyabinsk uh, episode back in, was it 2015, as long ago as that, um, where yeah. the, there was an explosion 30 kilometres above the ground and uh, there's a debris field down downstream of that. Uh, the biggest lump landed in a lake. Um, that thing didn't carry on in its orbit around the sun, uh, but uh, basically um, was thought to be about 30 20 to 30 kilometers, sorry, 20 to 30 meters across. Uh, once you get into the kilometer regime, you're talking about um, big danger there. There's danger mm. global, global impact. Uh, the, the current situation with near-Earth objects is NASA is working very hard, um, or it's funding uh, observatories at, at a very high level to determine everything below, Everything down to a size of about 140 meters. That's the the current threshold. Now, something that big hitting us is definitely going to do city or statewide damage, but it doesn't wipe out civilization. Uh, so um, that's the current uh, threshold for objects to be found. Uh, I think NASA, uh, Congress mandated NASA to uh, facilitate finding. 90% uh, of such objects, because it's always a statistical thing. You never quite know where the last one's going to come from. Yeah. No, I, I, I find the whole thing fascinating. And uh, the more we look, the more we find, the more we realise that there are numerous 
um, things out there that you know may or may not be a potential threat, but uh, at least we're keeping an eye on it, and that's that's important. And as time goes on, assuming we don't suffer a direct hit of something massive, yeah. and there's none of that in the foreseeable future, as far as I'm aware, um, we'll get better at finding them and better at dealing with them. And technology, one day, if not already, will reach a point where if we've got enough warning, we might be able to do something about it by um, perhaps diverting it just enough so that it will miss us. That, that's exactly the, the, the ploy. So um, just a sort of aside on that, one of the telescopes that uh, kept on working throughout the, the COVID-19 shutdown uh, is the PanStars telescope on Haleakala in Hawaii, uh, which is designed to look for exactly this sort of thing, near-Earth objects. So uh, we can be you know, reassured by the fact that that one kept on going. And just as an adjunct to that, I might mention, Andrew, that this week, this very week, the week starting the 11th of May, uh, the uh, Anglo-Australian telescope began work again. So we're observing with oh, the wonderful. Australian telescope in Coonabarabran. Uh, they've started work again uh, with very strict COVID restrictions, of course, but um, it's uh, hard at work. Uh, they got data uh, over the last two nights, which I'm delighted to hear. Hmm. Wonderful. Uh, also this week, uh, I believe, and it may have been attributable to a meteor shower that we've been experiencing recently, there was some kind of um, high atmospheric explosion over uh, some part of the United States, which was witnessed and certainly heard uh, by uh, many people. And it's a, it's a classic case. They saw it and then they heard it probably, yeah. well, the reports are saying three minutes later. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, I hadn't seen that report actually. That's interesting. Yeah, the, the 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 sonic boom is, you know, three to three to five minutes later, depending on the height that it it, it uh, actually explodes. <clears throat> yeah, but no damage as far as I'm aware in relation to this mm -hmm. one. Unlike um, uh, Chelyabinsk and well, Tunguska is one of the one of the great. <laughs> impacts or or near miss impacts or explosive events in uh, in natural history it's uh, you can uh, they've actually um, managed to get photos of the damage of Tunguska which uh, worth looking at but it just laid down vast areas of forest like matchsticks it was just incredible incredible Mm. Now, uh, let's move on to our next question, Fred, and, and thanks again, uh, Camelo, for getting in touch with us. Um, great to have you uh, on board as a space nut. Now, uh, this is um, a question from Paddy, who has uh, questioned us before. Paddy's a roof tiler from Sydney, Australia. Uh, he's just finished listening to the 200th episode and, um, yeah, sends his congratulations. Thanks, Paddy. Uh, and we did answer a question of his recently, and he has another one. So um, can we ever in the near future, as in 20 years, really send men or women to Mars? Because if we can, they'll need a roof tiler or a roof on their hab. And is terracotta roof tile a good way to block sun, the sun's radiation or solar flares or neutrinos? Um, uh, oh, by the way, I did get an adapter for my telescope from my iPhone uh, 10 and have taken pictures of the moon, Saturn's rings and Jupiter. We'll upload them as soon as um, uh, soon. But, um, yeah, that's I can't wait to see them, Paddy. Uh, but, um, yeah, protecting astronauts on Mars is probably the serious side of this question. I'm not sure they'll send Paddy to do roof tiling, <laughs> but they may. But uh, terracotta being a... Um, a uh, wonderful product that's used in, in roof tiling and construction. Would it be enough to protect 
someone on Mars? I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Uh, <laughs> I suspected you'd say that. Um, let me just, um, if I may, just go back to what uh, what Paddy was saying um, about uh, his pictures of the moon, Saturn's rings and Jupiter. And you didn't finish the sentence, but he, he used a technical term there, which I like very much. He said he will upload them soon, but still too much Alan. And Alan, of course, is artificial light at night. So, uh, Oh, Okay. Because Sydney is not the darkest place in the world, although parts of it are reasonably dark where I live. We actually get quite good views of the Milky Way from time to time. Never mind. You should move to a better suburb, Fred. (laughs) You mean a better suburb where there's more Alan? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, That's right. Um, So I think the – so look, I have to say I am not familiar – with the radiation blocking properties of terracotta roof tiles. Uh, I think they're good at keeping out the rain probably, uh, which is why they're all over the place. But uh, with the sun's radiation, and these are high energy subatomic particles, I think you need something more like um, lead blocks to stop that. Uh, Maybe lead sheeting would do it, or certainly something that will slow it down. Uh, terracotta might work, but I think you might need several metres of thickness of it, and that is not kind of what roof tiles look like normally. Um, so I suspect uh, that what we need is for uh, Paddy to maybe do a bit of retraining uh, in uh, in you know heavy lead roofing, and then he might be a candidate for going to Mars. His first question, however, can we ever in the near future, as in 20 years, really send men or women to Mars? I think we will. Um, the mm. NASA plan is uh, of order 2035. That's only 15 years away. Uh, there are still things to solve, and the radiation hazard is one of them. So it's a great question that Paddy asks. I think what will happen with the first um, astronaut visits to to Mars will be that there will be great precautions taken against the radiation. And it's a problem that's not really properly solved yet. But you can imagine that you might send robotic spacecraft there to start digging holes in the ground that people can, uh, you know, use as their habitation areas. to, in order to give them roofs that will actually uh, inhibit the radiation uh, risk, <clears throat> it's one that uh, a lot of people talk about. A lot of a lot of work's being done about. I don't think we've got the perfect solution yet. You've you've also got to worry about the six month flight to Mars, six or eight months. You're, you're in a very high radi- radiation, high dose radiation regime then as well, and uh, I don't think the problem of shielding the spacecraft has yet been properly solved either. Although I've seen some ideas, uh, sometimes they use bags of water and things like that to, to try and uh, inhibit the penetration of radiation. Uh, so we will see what the outcomes of all this are. It's clearly a solvable problem. Whether it's solvable with a spacecraft that can be made light enough to get people to Mars and back is another question. However, yeah. it is on the agenda. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, uh, Lots of problems to solve, but they've got people working on it, and I think they'll ultimately come up with, with answers. Uh, they won't go until they've solved all these problems. There's no point sending people on a suicide mission. Uh, and the other problem is um, lower gravity, so they're going to have to deal with... Um, muscle wastage. So I, I guess a, a lot of their time will be spent while they're in transit exercising to keep their muscle tone up. Yeah. 
they even did that on Skylab, I remember, and they used to um, they they had a track built around the interior. Uh, cylinder of Skylab, and they used to just run around in circles in zero g. Uh, I, I saw footage of it, and that that, that was how they exercised. And, yeah. and exercise is very very important in zero g to um, stop muscle wastage. Yeah, that, that's uh, right. I, I imagine it would be critical on a trip to Mars. Yeah, it would, and that's actually one reason why the International Space Station is there because it allows us. You know, to determine what kind of exercise regime is necessary, and astronauts up there exercise for several hours a day. Uh, so it's mm. all about, uh, yes, keeping muscle tone up. Yeah, many. Yeah, well, you know, what else are you going to do besides reading? You might as well exercise. That's why I'll never be an astronaut. I'm not a prolific reader, and I hate exercise. So I'm off the. Yeah, you know, I'm off. I'm off the the, the wait list. <laughs> I'm on another wait list because of the lack of exercise, but I'm not on the wait list for a trip to Mars. And neither are you, Paddy, I'm sorry to say. Um, I don't think a roof tiler is going to get the gig, but it was a nice thought. Actually, it reminds me when I was growing up, our um, my childhood home uh, had a terracotta roof and a lot of the moulding they used in those days in those um, 50s construction homes uh, was lead, lead um, moulding yeah. to... Um, Stop water getting in underneath the eaves and things like that. That's right. I I was just going to make that. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, lead used to be used. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, which would be very, very handy for stopping solar radiation, as it turns out. Uh, Thanks for your question, Paddy. Really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone. And don't forget, we now have a voice recorder system on our website if you would like to directly ask us a question using your own vocal cords. We'd love to hear from you. So go to bytes.com slash space nuts. That's B-I-T-E-S-Z and record your question for us. Uh, Hugh, our producer, is waiting with bated breath. Uh, we can't wait. Uh, so, yeah, please, please do. And don't forget to tell, tell us who you are and where you're from. That's important uh, as a part of it. Just you know, start off by saying, hi, I'm Fred Watson and I'm from Sydney and my question is, and that should cover it. That's Fred's real voice, by the way. Uh, Fred, as always, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. It's always a pleasure, mate. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. <laughs> I, I, honestly, yeah, um, I, I, for all I've lived in Australia for what is it? <laughs> more than well over thirty years. I can't do the accent at all. It's actually yeah, cool. and <laughs> it's it's always difficult for someone who's not a a native speaker uh, to try and replicate. But then again, I, I've got a terrible American accent, and after after a while, it turns French. I don't know why, but if I try a French accent, it turns American. So there you go. It's pathetic, really. It is. Yeah, it's horrible. Thanks, Fred. It's been good fun. We'll catch you again next week. Sounds great. Take care. Bye for now. That's Fred Watson, astronomer at large, uh, with us every week here on Space Nuts. As are you, which we greatly appreciate it. Thank you. And we can't wait to have another chat next week. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, farewell. See you next time on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.